From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. Today, we take a culinary journey with a show we've called What's Cooking, with original stories submitted by writers Darin Tanyol, Kimberly Lee, and Nancy Goodhue. Josh was my first pastry job. Josh saw me cry. By the time I got to the second tantrum-prone pastry chef, I was tougher and smarter and could hold my own in a kitchen. They weren't thrilled that first night about being called out of the comfort of their rooms and informed they were on cooking duty. Cooking French food for four sullen girls didn't last long. For all of us, it was a tumultuous time. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Barbara Josselson describes a condition familiar to many fiction writers. Then she looks at her brother and rolls her eyes. Don't even bother talking to mom tonight. She's got book brain. Book brain. That strange phenomenon when the characters in your head are more real to you than the actual people in your life. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Eating may be the most truly universal activity, and there's a whole lot of preparation behind it, whether we're feeding ourselves, our families, or guests in a restaurant. The submission prompt we published for the 650-word stories you're about to hear was What's Cooking? And we invited writers to share their stories of culinary trials and triumphs. We begin today with writer Darin Tanyol. Darin holds a PhD in art history and she's published and lectured on 19th and 20th century art. She received Fulbright, Cress, and Chateaubriand scholarships for two years of research in Paris, where, she says, she discovered pastry products of superior flakiness to their American counterparts. This led Darin to a non-academic career as a pastry chef. Here's Darin Tanyol reading her story, Two Ways to Quit. I have twice worked under the management of tantrum-prone pastry chefs. Josh was a megalomaniacal salon tanner whose tyranny occasioned the only time I ever quit a job without giving notice. I unbuttoned my white jacket during a busy Saturday dinner service, hung it on a hook next to the whisks, and walked out wearing a half-smile while Josh bounced after me in his kitchen-safe Birkenstocks, sputtering about unwashed cake pans. Josh was my first pastry job. Josh saw me cry. By the time I got to the second tantrum-prone pastry chef, I was tougher and smarter and could hold my own in a kitchen. I could rotate hot pans in the oven barehanded, ice a cake in under a minute, and caramelize four creme brulees at a time. I had a lot to learn about bread, though, and planned to use Lewis and his crappy hourly wage as a means to that instruction. The most pleasurable aspect of mornings at Lewis's bakery was shaping a large vat of airy living bread dough, which he made the night before, into boules and baguettes and rolls. I felt like a proud parent watching them rise and grow in the warm proofing box before putting them in the oven. I learned the sublime gratification of witnessing dough transform from gummy biological mass into bread, crunchy and cozy. 
I was about to learn the feelings of loss and morbidity when something goes wrong during the bread's gestation, like finding a groundhog has bitten the heads off of all your tulips. After two weeks on the job, I arrived for my early shift to find Lewis's dough sluggishly flat in its vat. I scaled and shaped it anyway, hoping the proofer would give it life. When Lewis arrived for the day, I showed him the boules and baguettes, which weren't rising one bit. He said perhaps he had used too much salt in the dough. And that killed the yeast? I asked, sad about the billions of lives lost. Possible, he replied, with an upward twitch of his eyebrows that made me imagine he was contemplating my theory. Impressively sanguine, despite the day's products looking doomed, Lewis said everything would be fine and we could put the dough in the oven. An hour later, I was selling a baguette to a regular customer who inquired why the bread looked like the blade of a wooden oar. I quietly said, we had a problem with the dough. Lewis screamed from the kitchen, there was nothing wrong with that dough. It was improperly proofed by the baker. Each shrill syllable was enunciated by projectile spittle, and the third person baker was me. Lewis's outbursts were legendary, and the customer winked at me and left us to battle. Did I not, my turn to scream, show you the dough? Did you not say you maybe used too much salt and tell me to put it in the oven anyway? Lewis rejoined that he had an important business to run and didn't have time for my heckling. He then proclaimed that on any given day, he knew precisely where I was in my menstrual cycle. I told him he was weird and had some shit to work out in therapy. He yelled something sounding at once prophetic and ludicrous, and I moved on to dicing apples. Over the course of three years, I was the 32nd person to hold my position at Lewis's bakery. The other 31 were fired or scared into never returning to work. I stayed with Lewis only as long as needed to get my bread education, then gave him a polite, easily considered two weeks notice. This met with a tantrum about betrayal and how thankless I was for all he taught me. He was wrong about that, and the memory of Lewis, a mad but masterful baker, even with the salt incident, shows up whenever I make bread. Doreen Tanyol is an avid technical rock climber, and she's logged over 2,000 vertical days on cliffs worldwide. She's taught art history at Wesleyan University and the State University of New York at New Paltz, and she's writing a series of personal essays about academia and the restaurant industry. Darin lives and writes in the Hudson Valley. Some years ago, Kimberly Lee left the practice of law to focus on motherhood, community work, and creative pursuits. Her writing has appeared in Fresh Ink, Thread, Toyon, The Prompt, The Sun, and Literary Mama, where she's an editorial board member and contributor. Here's Kimberly Lee reading Cook to Perfection. Greek-style chicken thighs with bruschetta, Italian steaks and panzanella, seared tilapia and pickled pepper relish, menu choices at a highly ranked restaurant, the final challenge recipes of a reality cooking show? Nope. They're a sampling of the meals my three teens have cooked together during the quarantine. They weren't thrilled that first night about being called out of the comfort of their rooms and informed they were on cooking duty. TJ, my eldest, 
looked like he might politely decline until the expression on my face indicated it was a firm directive, not a kind offer. They stand in a semicircle as I explain. Our normal escapades, travel, performances, get-togethers have been curtailed this year. The bulk of their adventures will take place within these walls. This is one of them every Monday from now on. I present a recipe from a meal kit delivery service, show them where the ingredients are, and leave them to it. The kids decide on specific roles. TJ commandeers the protein, generally stovetop. Elias, my youngest, chops vegetables. And Maya deals with sauces, salads, garnishes, and other assorted tasks. They occasionally find me to ask minor questions about zesters or potato mashers, but they mostly figure it out on their own. Only rarely has the smoke detector gone off. Olive oil has a low flash point, I say, making a clumsy attempt to explain what a flash point is. They laugh at this small calamity, grabbing pillows to wave under the machine until it is silenced. Music is integral, their choices consisting of an eclectic mix with tracks ranging from Khalid to Coldplay, Erica Badu to Post Malone. While they wait as water boils for rice or for roasted vegetables to brown, they show each other dance moves or share something they saw on TikTok. The atmosphere is jovial, a weekly mini party. As the months pass, I suggest they switch roles. They choose not to, and I don't push it. Each has found a niche. Initially dubious about the expedition, TJ now approaches me early in the day on Mondays to see what dish they will cook, then takes the meat out to thaw. At the designated time, Maya sets up her Bluetooth speaker and Elias gathers ingredients. When the evening's culinary adventure is complete, their faces glow from both exertion and pride. I'm content listening from my home office just off the kitchen as the combined sounds of laughter, music, and the stove's blower comprise an orchestra of sorts. I'm happily distracted from thinking about things I don't want to think about, things for which I don't have the answers, but so desperately seek. How these beautiful beings will fare after nearly a year of necessary restrictions on movement and fellowship, accompanied by a political atmosphere of strife and acrimony. How they are steadfastly pushing forward with online learning, affording only the rare in-person interaction with a friend. Whether the current awakening regarding racial issues will be impactful and true, leading to change that positively impacts their lives. Whether there's more that my husband and I can do to mitigate the negative effects of this challenging time. These thoughts are always either hovering on the edge of my consciousness or taking up prime retail space in my mind's center. Castelvetrano. Castelvetrano. I hear Elias pronouncing the type of olive he's chopping as they prepare a salad. I hear sizzling as TJ pan fries the chicken that Maya has coated with panko breadcrumbs. As they cook, transforming simple ingredients into something greater, I hear sounds of optimism, adaptability, good cheer. I fast forward to the future, imagining each of them with their own chosen families, sharing life and love in this same way, having survived these unprecedented times. In my search for answers from outside sources, I realize the answers are right here. Originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, Kimberly Lee lives in Southern California with her husband, 
and three children. Nancy Goodhue is a Vermont middle school teacher by day and a writer at night. Her contribution to our What's Cooking show is an essay entitled Chocolate Moose. That's chocolate, M-O-O-S-E. Here's Nancy Goodhue. My father was an enthusiastic American, but a Frenchman at heart. When he came to America as an adult, he embraced every American cliche and stereotype as truth. He insisted that the wrestling matches on television were real and that Tang was better than orange juice. Fascinated by American supermarkets and packaged convenience foods, he took great pride in our abundant trash pile on garbage day. With a very thick French accent, he was always peppering my mother, an American, with questions. Lois, what is this? Or Lois, how do you say? And Lois, will you marry me? After 18 years together, he still asked her every single day. My father died when I was 10. I don't speak French. He wanted us all to be American. After he died, we all wanted to be French. My sisters started French in school, and my mother began cooking from Julia Child's Mastering the Art of French Cooking. For years, we ate simple New England fare. My mother was from Maine, but we lived in suburban New Jersey. When she became a widow, she tried to end her life with an overdose. When that didn't work, she started to drink her coffee black, wear Chanel scarves, and cook from her first edition copy of America's First French Cookbook. The book had been in the house for years. To be honest, it wasn't a total transformation. In her early marriage, before she had four children, she looked like Jackie Kennedy's sister, spoke French, and cooked my father's favorite French dishes with aplomb. But the years, the children, the alcohol, the accumulated life she endured made it easier to shift back to familiar Maine cuisine. Cooking French food for four sullen girls didn't last long. For all of us, it was a tumultuous time. My sisters rebelled. We still have that first edition of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. It might have been worth some money, a thousand dollars or more, if my sister Laura had not crossed out the word cooking and scrawled kissing underneath. Then, in place of Julia Child's name, she wrote Jean. Jean is my oldest sister. I discovered this marginalia when I turned 11. Trying so hard to please, I decided to try my hand at French cooking. Surely I could do just as well as my suicidal alcoholic mother. It didn't take long to realize that Julia Child didn't write that book for fifth graders. I spent a day reading the book and deciding what to cook. The next day, I decided to try mousse au chocolat. All the while thinking the dish was called chocolate mousse, not mousse. Once, I found a misspelling in a book, and I was tickled to have found another. I looked for mistakes in books like some children look for four-leaf clovers. We probably didn't have all the ingredients, but that didn't stop me. I used German-Swiss baking chocolate and put the finished product in jelly jars. The result was a grainy, bitter disaster. I put the jars in the refrigerator anyway and hoped for the best. The kitchen looked like a volcano had exploded. I don't remember how the pots and pans were washed, but I do remember using dish rags to wipe the counters and floors and cabinet faces. We always had a rag bucket under the sink. I know paper towels were available to buy in 1975, but we never did. One of my sisters understood my attempt at French cooking. 
an 11 year old in the kitchen needs more than a recipe and the ingredients. I needed help, guidance, and someone to trust. Linda tried unsuccessfully to help me make mousse au chocolat in the next few days. I don't know why we couldn't get it right. A couple of days after that, I was rummaging around the refrigerator and inspiration struck. I mixed a few ingredients together, found the jelly jars, and presented Linda with my very own, very American chocolate mousse. My father would have loved it. Here's the recipe. Cool Whip and Chocolate Carnation Instant Breakfast Powder. Writer and teacher Nancy Goodhue has an MFA from Bay Path University, and she says she's unpublished except for lengthy apologies in her personnel file at school. She lives in Brattleboro, Vermont. Read 650 is a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote writers with this forum for true personal stories told five minutes and 650 words at a time. Please tell your writer friends about us. And if you're a writer, check out the submission calls for our upcoming shows at read650.org. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I am your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, Lisa Donati-Meyer, Karen Duques, and Shelley Sadler-Kenny. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and our show is produced with assistance from Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. We'll be back after a short break. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Support for Read 650 comes from Carnegie Hall in New York City, whose mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on its three stages. Carnegie Hall brings the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, provides visionary education programs, and fosters the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. Ignite passion. Embrace joy. For more information and event schedules, visit carnegiehall.org. When a writer is in the zone, when the ideas are coming and the words are flowing, when a writer is onto something and is just itching to get back to it, it's hard to maintain focus on anything else. And it's a state that Barbara Josselson knows all too well. On today's Between the Lines segment, Barbara recounts a recent bout with a condition she calls book brain. Barbara, Aaron calls to me from upstairs. Where'd you go? I ignore him and continue downstairs to the kitchen, where my family is preparing dinner. My daughter sets the table, and my son brings over the salad. My husband takes out the salmon and sweet potatoes that I'd put in the oven earlier. It all smells delicious. Barbara! Aaron calls again, more insistent now. Caroline and I are hungry. And I'm not planning to talk until the pasta comes. Caroline chimes in. I groan. Yes, they're hungry. But I'm hungry, too. I wish I'd remembered to put rolls on their table. I know they have wine, but it's their first dinner together, so they shouldn't start off drinking too much. Mom! My daughter shouts, and I startle to attention. Then she looks at her brother and rolls her eyes. Don't even bother talking to Mom tonight. She's got book brain. Book brain. That strange phenomenon when the characters in your head are more real to you than the actual people in your life. It's the transformation writers long for, 
the moment when characters turn into human beings with faces and bodies, memories and motivations, fantasies and fears. Suddenly writing feels like an act of discovery and not merely a process of throwing random ideas at a wall and hoping something sticks. For an author, it's the magical change that makes all the hard work worthwhile, except when your characters won't let you eat. I sit down with my family, determined to have a nice dinner. But then my mind drifts to Aaron and Caroline, sitting at their table on the patio of that romantic Italian restaurant, inventing new ways to explore their unexpected and ill-advised love story. I picture them, doll-like figures who've jumped out of the computer to play. I'll ask what it's like to raise a daughter alone, Aaron says, and I'll say she's the best thing in my life, Caroline responds. Right, then I'll look down at my lap, and I'll wonder if you're hiding something from me. Suddenly my family fades away, and my hunger subsides. Aaron and Caroline are upstairs improvising, and there's nothing I'd rather do than join them. I'm sorry, I say as I get up from my chair. It'll only be a few minutes, I promise. Just let me get them through their dinner. Then I'll come back and eat. I feel their befuddled expressions behind me, but I have no patience to explain. I run upstairs and sit back at the computer. Okay, I say, where were we? Aaron and Caroline smile when they see me, as the server brings their meal. Barbara Josselson is a novelist, freelance journalist, and writing coach. She's the author of four novels, and her essays and articles have appeared in a range of publications, including New York Magazine, Parents Magazine, and American Baby. She teaches at the Sarah Lawrence College Writing Institute. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show, and it's a place writers of all genres can contribute their thoughts about writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll also find open submission calls for upcoming shows. If you like this episode and like our show, please tell your friends. And if they don't know how to subscribe to a podcast, please show them how they can receive our newest episodes every Writer Wednesday. That wraps things up for today, and we extend our thanks again to writers Dorin Tanyo, Kimberly Lee, Nancy Goodhue, and Barbara Josselson. For more Read 650, you can view original performances on our YouTube channel and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can see our upcoming show themes at read650.org, and if you're thinking about submitting a story, please start writing. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening today. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.